Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AI for Students podcast. I'm Matt Aldridge, a junior at the University of Georgia and a member of the AI Executive Council program. Today, I'm very excited to share a conversation my classmate Robin and Zulis and I moderated with AI's Ramesh Panuru on the future of the Republican Party. Before getting started, I want to let you know that the AI Executive Council program gives current undergraduates the opportunity to engage with AI scholars through conversations like this one and to improve the quality and diversity of public policy dialogue on campus. If you want to get involved or learn more about AEI's work on college campuses across the country, just check out the link in the show notes and make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please be sure to like the Campus Exchange and to give us a rating to help others find the podcast. With that, here's my conversation with Ramesh Panuru. Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. This is Matt Aldridge, and I am a third-year history and philosophy student at the University of Georgia, where I focus on the relationship between law and public policy. And I am Robin Anzulis. I am a third-year student studying applied math and economics with an interest in national security and the law. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Ramesh Panuru, visiting fellow at AEI and senior editor at National Review to discuss the present and future of conservatism and the Republican Party. Ramesh, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. The Republican Party has now moved to what you have previously described as a post-policy world to grievance politics or something that New York Times writer Ross Duthat calls dream politic. Would you describe this as a short-term development as a result of the GOP being out in the political wilderness after Trump's defeat in the 2020 election? or a larger, more structural issue that could persist longer than in the near term? I do think that this is a longer term issue, that Trump is as much symptom as cause of the shift that we're seeing in Republican and conservative politics. There's always a symbolic element in politics that's not new, that's not even necessarily a bad thing. But I do think that over the years, the Republican Party has leaned more and more heavily on that kind of politics and moved away from the idea of policy solutions to challenges to the country being most of the substance of politics. And so you get the situation where, for example, in the 2018 election, when Republicans had the House and the Senate and the White House, they were not saying, you know, reelect us because if you do, we're going to accomplish A, B, and C. It was much more a campaign, frankly, about things like, you know, who's kneeling at halftime than about anything that the government did or could do. Great. And why do you think, especially now, this type of grievance style politics has, you know, until maybe recently worked so well for the GOP. Is there any electoral incentive immediately apparent to move beyond grievance politics, move back to, you know, a more policy centric political agenda? Or perhaps what electoral forces could you see driving the GOP back to a policy centric world? Well, I think that the question gets at a very important point, which is that. The political incentives have to be there to 
cause a change in behavior. And it's not obvious that they are. The Republican Party has done all right in electoral terms without being as policy focused as it once was. The 2020 campaign was not an especially policy focused campaign, for example. It was a grievance heavy campaign. And yet Republicans came within, I think, about 90,000 votes nationally of getting all three branches, getting the House, the Senate, and the White House. They came up short for a variety of reasons, but I think that a lot of practical politicians are going to look at that record and think, you know, what, what do we have to change? What's the, what's the urgency of changing? Who in the party is demanding that we change anything? Where I think that you do have a different sort of type of incentive to change is if conservative and Republican voters decide at some point there are actually things that we want the government to be doing differently or to be to be doing that are we want it to do less of some things and more of other things. And we're not accomplishing that when we don't run on actual proposals to change the government. So for example, if you want to actually change American healthcare policy, if you're not satisfied with Obamacare, then you actually have to do the work of coming up with a conservative alternative to it and then sell that alternative. You mentioned healthcare. I was wondering what other things would kind of fall into the category of things conservative voters of the future might push for just in order to kind of push electoral politics of the Republican Party out of the grievance space and back into the policy space. Well, I think when thinking about what a conservative agenda should be, the place to start is by thinking about the problems and challenges that we face. And then we try to respond to those in ways that are consistent with our conservative dispositions. And so one of those things, as we've just been talking about, would certainly be some of the problems we have with healthcare, with the cost of healthcare in particular. And there are a variety of discrete problems that people have with healthcare having to do with the difficulty of maintaining continuous coverage of getting cheap catastrophic coverage and so forth. But there are lots of other places where I think that we can identify problems that have conservative solutions. So for example, our higher education system was for a long time a kind of portal to opportunity, but in in some ways it has become a kind of bottleneck to opportunity. And I think that there are a lot of things that we could do to expand the number of alternative institutions and pathways that people have to having rewarding careers, expanding the alternatives for financing higher education as well, deregulating the accreditation standards so that different kinds of colleges could be eligible for student loans. The policies we have on higher education mostly reflect liberal assumptions and not particularly conservative or free market or libertarian ones. And so there's a lot to be done there. Our immigration policy is another area that could use reform. We have an immigration system that is not particularly geared to today's circumstances in terms of, for example, our need for high-skilled workers. And 
that is something where a conservative approach might start sort of rethinking the system that's been built up. But, but really, I mean, there, there are so many areas where we could see a kind of applied conservatism make a real difference, and not just at the federal level, but at the state and local level as well. Sure. I think that those are a lot of problems that maybe perhaps younger conservative audiences would be receptive to in terms of identifying them as problems. But I think perhaps you might agree with me here that the conservative base at present, maybe to look different 10, 15, 20 years down the road, starkly identifies different problems than we would in terms of actual things the government can solve using policy tools and primarily focused on arguably cultural issues, you know, that Donald Trump really exploited when he came onto the scene as running as a 2016 contender. So I guess my question here is more of a a chicken or the egg type thing. Whereas, do you think that it takes the GOP of today to change how the conservative base of the future thinks about policy? Or will it be the conservative base of the future changing how the GOP thinks about policy down the road? Or maybe perhaps a mix of those two things. Well, I mean, I think politics is always kind of a dynamic of both of those sorts of things. There is a role for leadership, but at the same time, part of leadership is knowing kind of you know what the traffic will bear and what there might be a demand for. I mean, one might think of it in terms of entrepreneurship. There is an element of creating demand for your product, but your ability to do that is not unlimited. I do think, you know, part of what has happened in the Republican Party is that there was an enormously successful Republican and conservative program for several decades. And it just hit the point of diminishing returns. It it ceased being as relevant to the circumstances of American life. And what we've ended up with is a situation where the old formula doesn't speak to people, but Republicans haven't really come up with something new. So it's it's not as though there have been all these great conservative solutions that Republican politicians have offered and then voters were just not interested in it. There really hasn't been that kind of development. And maybe it's just this is sort of a natural arc in politics when you've got a, a successful formula, the Reagan formula, and then you've got to come up with a second act at some point. That's a really interesting observation. Kind of going off of that. And talking about what does the Republican Party do right now in the midst of a unified government? We have the Democrats controlling the White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate, albeit narrowly. In your opinion, how do you think that congressional Republicans should respond to this? Should they toe the party line and make it difficult for even relatively bipartisan measures to pass? Or should they pursue compromises that may help to improve their reputation among moderate voters? Well, I do think that it's important to stand up against bad ideas from the Democrats. I do think much of politics, much of life is is opposing bad ideas. And I think that in some ways, the Democratic Party is also out of touch and is also operating from a kind of old and stale agenda that it hasn't really updated. You know, I mean, if you think about what the, the sort of the new ideas of the Democratic Party, it's you know the minimum wage. It's an idea from the 1930s. The the great childcare idea is basically to expand commercial daycare, which is the form of 
childcare arrangement that American parents like and want least of all. So I think it's important to point that out. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't cooperate in some areas. And I think you've seen some efforts to suggest new approaches to some of these areas. You saw this with Senator Romney's child allowance idea, or Senator Cotton and Senator Hawley have talked about different ways of bolstering wages for low-income workers without having some of the drawbacks of the $15 minimum wage in terms of lost jobs. But to, to I guess, more directly answer your question, sort of what Republicans should do, I think that the opposition to bad ideas is important, but I also think it is important to propose alternative ideas. And too often, Republican politicians see these as substitutes. They think all we have to do is oppose, whereas I, I, I think even opposition is more effective if it is coupled with pointing out that there's a better way. What do you make of this kind of foray into perhaps what one might consider previously democratic dominated spheres of, you know, welfare politics of the politics of using the government to subsidize and assist working class communities? What what do you think about these developments? And do you think that they shine a positive light for the future of the Republican Party? Well, I think that this is very much a work in progress. Republicans, again, are sort of trying to come up with a new program. And so I suspect that we are going to see some bad ideas as well as some good ideas. And we're going to see some ideas that just need to be refined in order to be productive and helpful. I don't think conservatism historically is successful in the U.S. when it is sort of rigid and doctrinaire about free markets and limited government. But it does, I think, always draw on insights about the dangers of centralization and the unintended consequences of rash government action. So I think it's a great thing that Republicans are increasingly thinking in terms of what different policy levers can be used to address the problems that blue-collar Americans have. Now, I think that sometimes people get those answers wrong, though. For example, I think there's been, among those Republicans who are rightly focusing on those sorts of questions, there has been much too much of a focus on protectionism as an answer to these problems. Now, I mean, I I think that people haven't really always thought through the consequences of protectionism. And I think we saw with Trump's tariffs, a lot of those negative unintended consequences. But I also think they're overestimating the extent to which the problems that we face are a function of foreign competition. Let's suppose that the GOP takes back the House and Senate in 2022. What is their ideal pitch? What is their ideal legislative agenda with a Biden president? How are they setting themselves up for success, assuming that they are doing so? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. And it's so it's so hard to know what U.S. politics is going to look like in 2023. Both parties are in different ways in transition. You know, what's the economy going to look like at that stage? But I think the general thrust should be to 
advance an attractive agenda and then where possible make compromises with President Biden or whoever the Democratic president is at that time. And if not, try to sort of make a popular agenda that you can deliver on after the 2024 elections when you'll be trying to, particularly under this scenario, re-achieve unified Republican control. I, I think this would be an agenda that would have you know, would would sort of have to be a full bore agenda. It would have to have economic elements, would have to have social elements, it would have to tackle some of the hot button issues, but it really would just, but it would have to, I think, and this is a place where I think Republicans have fallen short as their agenda has gotten more and more outdated. It has to make a big offer to the American people. Like if you vote for us, these are the ways that people's lives will be tangibly better off, that people, you know, will be, will have higher take-home pay, that they'll be safer, that their kids will have more educational options, and so forth. And by the way, you know, I do think that the experience we've had over the last year might create some more space for Republicans to be bolder with respect to school choice and promoting some more alternatives that are more accountable to parents. That's a really interesting point that you brought up. And in particular, talking about creating an attractive policy agenda going into the 2022 midterms and going into, if they were to win back the House and Senate, into a new legislative session. And one thing that I always thought was interesting, I'm a former student leader of the College Republicans. Representative Doug Collins would frequently come on out to campus. And a lot of what he would talk about is the messaging that we use, how Republicans promote certain policies, but we tend to fail to actually sell them with people and just talking about how do we get people excited about conservative policies. I was wondering kind of what is your take on that? How should Republicans move forward with messaging and actually make a conservative agenda seem attractive to a 2022 electorate? So as much as we've been talking rightly about the importance of a conservative policy agenda, it's important to keep in mind voters are not policy wonks. There are very, very few people, the three of us are probably in the group, but we're very <laughs> unusual, who are going to pour over papers on d- different sorts of policy alternatives. But people do expect their political leaders to be thinking of these things in a, in a serious way and to have solutions to some of the problems they face. So the important thing. I think, is to be able to relate to people about their concerns and to be able to communicate to them that you share those concerns and that you're planning to do something about it. And so very often, it won't be the details of the policy agenda that you are putting front and center, but you are sort of using your policy agenda to communicate something about who you are, what your values are, what you share in common with voters. And this is something that takes political talent. It's not something that comes naturally to every elected official. And you don't see that talent just sort of everywhere. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about messaging. And let's fast forward a little bit even further into the future, if we can extrapolate that much. Let's suppose the 2022 midterms have ended and the 2024 presidential jockeying has begun for the Republican primary. Assuming that Trump is not yet, nor will be a candidate, what types of candidates do you think will become frontrunners? To me, it seems like there 
are three very big lanes, some much bigger than the others. But generally, there is the first lane, which is Donald Trump. The second lane, which is the candidates that attempt to emulate and be like Donald Trump. And then the third and presumably least successful lane is the Governor Larry Hogan's and the Senator Ben Sass's of the world. What type of candidate do you think will be successful? Well, of course, whether Trump himself runs and how well he would do if he does, I mean, that's, we'll, we'll bracket that as you suggest. Barring that scenario, I think that the nomination is unlikely to go to the person who's trying hardest to imitate Trump and being kind of the cut rate knockoff version of Trump. But it's also unlikely to go to, to anybody who is sort of frontally attacking Trump and running sort of overtly as an anti-Trump. I mean, the, the nomination is going to go to somebody who can bring the party together, who can bring together the social conservatives and the economic conservatives and the nationalist conservatives and the people who just say that they're somewhat conservative. And then if that person is positioning to be a successful nominee, somebody who can actually win the 2024 election, it's got to be somebody who can also appeal to particularly working class voters of all races who haven't necessarily been voting Republicans for Republicans for office on a consistent basis. So that's that's a tall order because you've got to both unify the Republican coalition and then move beyond it. In terms of messaging to become that successful candidate, to what extent do you think a big policy agenda that's being communicated is going to play a big part? We saw in the 2020 election, you know, the Republican Party not even releasing a policy platform, just running on Donald Trump. To what extent do you think that's changing in terms of how those running are communicating with the primary electorate? Well, look, I mean, if we're in a recession in 2023 and 2024, if the country is unhappy with the direction of the country and the Republican nominee is somebody who is acceptable to most people. Well, then it may be possible that Republicans don't actually need much of a policy agenda to succeed. Just because I would like them to have one doesn't mean that we should we should confuse that for a prerequisite for winning elections as, you know, because of political analysis and political advocacy are just different things. I think you do need the agenda, as we've been discussing, if you actually want to accomplish something. That is, if you want to be successful in governance. And I think that an agenda can be politically helpful as well in communicating your values and so forth. Whether the Republican Party is going to get there is going to sort of be in a good position to be a center-right governing party in 2024. You know, that's an open question. I think the party is in much more flux, is much more of a jump ball than really almost any time I can remember because, you know, Trump blew up the old Republican coalition and agenda and program, but didn't really replace it with anything that is particularly detailed or fleshed out. And so we're seeing lots of different people come forward and try to fill that gap with, I guess, something other than Donald Trump's personality. And you know whether, whether they'll be able to do that successfully is an open question. One of the things that really has struck me in my several decades now of writing about and following politics is that the campaigns are important because they test people and because you can't see how they are going to do 
until they've actually run. I mean, you can have a candidate who looks good on paper. And then when the candidate actually runs, turns out, you know, can't take a punch or is trying too hard to be all things to all people. And so nobody's passionately attached to that person and so forth. And there's just, there's sort of no substitute for seeing them in action. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I just want to ask one final question. So growing up, my parents always told me not to worry too much about the future of the Republican Party. In their words, most people become Republicans as soon as they start paying taxes. But as I mentioned, I'm a former student leader of the college Republicans, and I can't help but wonder if the grand old party is sort of going out of fashion. Every time I walk into a room with other young Republicans, the demographic makeup is overwhelmingly white, somewhat rural, and at least nominally Christian. And the issues that most draw people into the party are not primarily taxes. Every time I walk into a debate, I go onto a debate and taxes is like the most boring issue. The issues are hot button topics like abortion, immigration, gun rights, cancel culture, and the perceived threat of socialism, as Matt was kind of mentioning before, these cultural issues. So given all of this, what do you see as the future of the Republican Party? Do you see a more diverse party or a continuation of current demographics? What are the policy distinctions that you think will define this party? And is the GOP, as we know it, disappearing? This is not a small last question that you've asked. <laughs> I would say it doesn't bother me. It doesn't trouble me that a lot of conservative voters and activists are more interested in the right to life than in taxes. The right to life is more important than taxes, as far as I'm concerned. So I, I'd fall into that category myself. I do think that the Republican Party's demographic basis has to get broader. Married white Christians were once the demographic core of the country, and they're still the demographic core of the Republican Party, but they're a shrinking percentage of the overall population. Now, we have seen some encouraging signs, particularly in the 2020 election, that Republicans are making some headway among Hispanic voters, Asian American voters, African American voters. They're early signs. They're sort of fledgling. But I do think that that is a direction that the Republican Party has to go in. And it's not, it won't be, I think, a kind of either or choice. It's sort of, do we maintain conservative stances on polarizing issues or do we have conservative solutions on issues that are less ideological? I think you got to do both of those things. Successful parties always have that kind of mix. The Republican Party is going to remain the more culturally traditionalist of the two parties, the more nationalistic of the two parties, and the more, I think, market-oriented, although that's a little bit more in question, of the two parties. The question is, do those impulses and dispositions get channeled in a way that meets the needs that people perceive? I think that's very much doable. It's the work of conservatism that Republicans have been successful at doing in the past. And if Republicans are going to be successful in the future, it's going to be in the same way by showing that conservatism still has a lot to offer to the American people. Ramesh, thank you so much for speaking with us today. You're welcome. I hope someday we can do it in person. Absolutely. Someday soon. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode of the Campus Exchange, make sure to give us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. Also, if you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click on the link in our show notes. And make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about our upcoming events for students. 